Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's good to be back down here in Hamo South and seeing so many familiar faces. Um, well, let's get into it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be finishing off Luke chapter 1, getting ready for next week where we get into the birth of Christ, which I'm particularly looking forward to. Um, so if you have your Bibles, it'll be a good opportunity to now grab those and uh, open up to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to break them up into three sections. We're not going to read it all at one big chunk. We're going to kind of like work our way through it as we get there. Uh, but before we do that, I want to ask you, it's that feeling that you get in your gut that tells you that God either doesn't care about you or that God has left you, that he's abandoned you, he's, he's walked away. And sometimes it comes after we fall into sin. We've committed a sin that we've been struggling with, we know we ought not to do it, and then that immediate feeling after we've committed that sin is, God doesn't love me, he's abandoned me, he's walked away. Sometimes it comes um, when you've been watching too much in the news, and you see how messed up this world is, and you think, oh, what is going on? Other times, it comes after you receive terrible news, like someone has passed away, or something horrible has happened in your life, and the feeling that normal feeling of closeness to God that you normally have, those feelings of joy and gratitude, is something of the past. It's something that you used to have. It's something that used to um, be your story. And now your story is this feeling of loneliness in this harsh and cold world. And then you come to Christmas, the greatest holiday probably ever created. Uh, a holiday so loved that non-Christians can't bear to let go of it, even though they've let go of Christianity entirely. It is really one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us in terms of a, a holiday, but even greater than that is what it symbolizes in the greatest gift, obviously being Jesus. And it's a shame that in Australia we celebrate Christmas in summer, and we don't celebrate it in winter, because the arrival of Jesus, it came in cold and dark times, times of abandonment, times of feeling like... This is not going well. Uh, the cold and the snow in the Northern Hemisphere can help you feel that. But in Australia, we feel the arrival of Jesus in a different way. It's long days and it's usually very hot. Apparently, something happened in December and that never ended up becoming a thing. <laughs> but when Jesus arrived, it was this great burst of warm, brilliant light in a time of the shadow of death. Israel had lived for 400 years without profit and without guidance. Having gone from national crisis to national crisis, suffering at the hands of this great, powerful empire, and finding themselves now with this strange feeling of abandonment. What is God doing? And after 400 years, some begin to doubt. And if you don't understand the context of Christmas, you won't understand the promise of Christmas. And if you don't understand the love of God, you won't know how to cope when it feels like He's abandoned you. In the case of the wicked, yes, it is true. God really has abandoned them and given them over to their sinful desires. But in the case of his righteous, like Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the people we've been reading about in Luke 1, he will never leave us. He will never abandon us. That's why it's quite amazing that Luke begins his gospel with a woman who felt as though God was silent and he didn't hear her cries. Elizabeth had cried out for a child, for a baby, for many years. She had waited and waited until the possibility of children passed from her, and she had to come to terms with her barrenness. But we learned on the first week that God had not abandoned her, that he had heard her cry, and that his good timing was coming not only to bless her with a child, but with a son who would perform many great things for the Lord. And he would be the first prophet to bring a word to Israel after 400 years of silence. 
He would be the first light to Israel after 400 years of darkness. And we're reading about that prophet, and that prophet is John the Baptist. And so I've got three points that I want to walk you guys through as we go through our text. My first point is the birth of the prophet. My second point is the return of prophecy. And my third point is the arrival of the word. So we're going to pick up in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. All right, we'll stop there. Well, today we're going to see this mighty fulfillment of all that God had spoken through the prophets and through his angel Gabriel. You will remember that Zechariah, he was offering incense in the temple when an angel appears and makes a promise to him that he's going to have a son in his old age. Now, you'd think that the righteous priest, Zechariah, would respond with wonder and awe. This angel's appeared to him, he's made a promise, this promise that he's longed for for so long. You'd think in that moment he'd be like, Yes, God, this is amazing. I'm so happy that this is happening. But instead of this, he was cynical. He was unbelieving. And he was punished. God made Zechariah mute so that he wouldn't be able to speak until all the things that the angel said was going to come to pass came to pass. And so it was a long nine months to wait for his son to be born, not being able to utter a single word. And he was punished because of his unbelief. Now, unbelief is, especially unbelief before God, is a far more serious sin than we give it credit for. Some people can feel as if Zechariah was kind of hard done by. You know, oh, come on, why is he mute for nine months? It doesn't seem like it's really that bad. And we feel as though before God, our doubts are warranted. That if God makes promises to us, well, it's really on him to prove that he is capable of doing it. It's really on him to show us that he really can follow through with what he says. But we forget who we are speaking to. We are speaking to the one who formed stars, who fashioned the entire world, who set the lines and boundaries of oceans and the rotations of planets. How in the world would it be impossible for God to form a little baby in the womb of an elderly mother when he's done all of these things? And we know this thing of unbelief. When someone doesn't believe in you and you say something to them, you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, this is what I want to do, this is, this is uh, my, my task, and someone says, nah, we'll see. That stings, doesn't it? It hurts. Why? Because they don't believe we're capable. They don't believe we're consistent enough, or they don't think we're willing enough. Either way, kind of shows that that person doesn't think highly of you, doesn't it? We know what it's like to have someone who doesn't believe in us, how much more God? And Zechariah, a priest well-versed in the Old Testament, who knows the miracles performed in the Old Testament, like Sarah, the mother of Samson, Hannah, he knows that God has done this before. 
But it's one thing to have it performed for them in the Bible. It's another thing for God to do it for him. For Zechariah, these kinds of things don't happen to guys like him. But it's like, wake up, dude. There's an angel right in your face. It's happening to you. What about you? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever limited God on what he's capable of doing? Have you ever thought in your mind, well, God won't do this for me because I'm in this special category where God isn't going to be kind or gracious or loving or bless me. He may choose not to, but you must believe that he can because he can. He is capable. Nothing will be impossible for God, the angel tells Zechariah. Our unbelief is offensive to him. And Zechariah wasn't cursed with silence because the angel was a little cranky. Zechariah, the priest of God, was wallowing in self-pity and unbelief. He was too cynical to see the amazing things happening to him. But God still is merciful, isn't he, to Zechariah. Zechariah gets his muteness, but it's not forever. It's only nine months. Month by month, this little infant, John, grew in the womb of his elderly mother, sustained, healthy, strong by the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. The God who sustained this little baby in the womb sustains him, we see in this passage, through childbirth. And Luke tells us that the birth really turned into a whole village affair. Now, some of you ladies that have had kids, I don't know if you really want the whole village outside, heavily involved and invested in everything that's happening in there. That's probably something that, you know, you want a little bit of privacy, but not, not this small Judean village. They were all involved. And it's a Jewish custom at the time to name their baby during their circumcision. And sometimes they would name them after their father or after a family member. And so this custom has kind of developed And uh, Zechariah is not able to speak, so they come to the mother. It's normally the father who names the son, but he can't speak, so they go to the mother and they say, what are we going to call him? Let's call him Zechariah. And she says, no, we're going to call him John, because that's what the angel said. The angel said he would be called John. And they all were kind of dismayed. No one in the family was called John. They went into Zechariah, and he manages to scribble down on this tablet that he wants his son named John. Immediately, Zechariah, having written that thing down, named his son. And having named his son, that was the last thing on the tick list that needed to be ticked for all the things that the angel Gabriel said would come true to come true. And so then, all of a sudden, he's able to speak. And everyone is just stunned. Everyone is amazed. They're thinking, what on earth is happening? And you must understand why they're thinking this. They've had 400 years of silence. And all of a sudden, God is just breaking through in these amazing ways and overcoming everyone's doubts and unbelief. And the hot topic for all the people is now, well, if God has done all this for Zechariah and Elizabeth, what is he going to do for this boy? What is he going to do? They say here, what then will this child be? It's a great question to ask because an amazing ministry was going to be planned for John the Baptist. He was so important that all four Gospels take care to introduce him, describe his ministry in detail. Luke even details all the way back to his birth and the amazing events surrounding that too. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 11, that John was the greatest natural man to have ever lived. It's impressive rap sheet. Luke follows up by saying, the hand of the Lord was with him. And I was just reflecting on that, that last little section there and how important that is for the hand of the Lord to be with us. And we can never lose sight of this because John would not have been the man that he grows up to be 
if the hand of the Lord was not upon him. And that means for all of us, we would not grow into maturity in Christ if the hand of the Lord is not upon us. You are entirely dependent on God's power and sustaining. Without it, you are destitute, you are hopeless, your life would unravel in a second if God was not sustaining you and keeping you and bringing you into further and further lengths of godliness. The same God who sustained and formed this little life in the womb, the same God who indwelt this little baby, we remember, from the womb, is the same God who was going to be with him. Apart from God, we can do nothing. And apart from his good pleasure and will, we have nothing. All of it is by grace, even the most noble and the most impressive of us. You'd think that we come to John, the greatest man, according to Jesus, who had ever lived, and you would think you wouldn't read that kind of stuff, but we do, because even the greatest man to have ever lived needed to be sustained every second of every day by God, and he deserves all the credit for our, the gifts we have, for all the skills we have, every, not a single cell, not a hair follicle, an IQ point, or a heartbeat, or a breath, is apart from the will and mercy and grace of God. And we would do well to remember this, not just for our own life, but the life of our children. We stand on the promises of Scripture for our children as well. And we know that the work is ultimately done by God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one thing that we must rely on for all sustaining. Psalm 127, you guys know this one well. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And Zechariah and Elizabeth brought this young boy up in the Lord, but their labors would have been fruitless without the work of God in his life. And we always remember that. We always remember that. Trust in God. Pray constantly for your children. Be diligent. Don't be lazy. But remember that God is at work. He has not abandoned you. He is not silent. And for those who love God, all things will work together for good. And I think that leads me to my second point, which is the return of prophecy. So we're going to read the first half of Zechariah's prophecy here, starting from verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, here is the word of God returning to Israel. Now, it may have been that prophecy has occurred before Zechariah. We don't limit God, but we don't have any recorded prophecy before what we just read. That was the first recorded prophecy in the 400 years of silence that we see, that we know of since Malachi, to make it into the pages of Scripture. And it's worth noting that all true prophecy we see at the beginning is a result of the Holy Spirit filling someone. It is a work of God who empowers them to do it. And that's exactly what happens to Zechariah here. And it's interesting that the content of Zechariah's prophecy isn't so much about John as it is about Jesus. And obviously, he knows his son, though his son performs a really important role, his son's entire purpose 
in being born into this world is to point and glorify uh, the Christ, to point to Jesus. That it was his entire existence, really, would be to glorify Christ. And that's kind of the role of all of us, isn't it? The entire purpose of our existence, the entire purpose of our ministry, the entire purpose of everything that we have is to glorify Jesus as a follower of Him. It says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you guys will probably know this one, what is the chief end of man? Someone can answer that? Yeah, good stuff. There was a lot of people answering that. I'm shame you're doing a good job here, mate. Uh, this is exactly the purpose of John. It's to point wayward people, wayward Israel, to their king, to glorify his saviour Jesus and to enjoy his saviour Jesus. And Zechariah first praises God for visiting and redeeming his people. He knows what the Messiah would come to do. It was rescue. It was ransom. It was deliverance. It was salvation. The Messiah would ransom captive Israel from the power of sin and from the devil. Uh, Zechariah uses this language here of raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now, a horn symbolized power and strength. If you've ever been to a rodeo, you don't want to end up in the middle with the bull because that horn will mess you up. Horns are strong. But it's more likely that this horn is probably not the horn of a bull that's being raised up, but the horn which you would blow on the battlefield. They would sometimes use a ram's horn, they would holler it out, and then some guys would blow into it and create this great big blast. And that was how you'd communicate, because how are you going to communicate with like 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 men on the battlefield? How are you going to say to them, hey guys, we need to move here, we need to do this, we need to retreat, we need to go forward. How do you communicate? With a horn. And it was like a rallying cry. It would rally your troops. It would bolster them, encourage them, get them ready for battle. And so what is being raised up here? A horn in the house of David. A battle cry. The Lord Jesus. A horn to rally around. A horn to be encouraged by. A horn to get back into the fight for. And this is where you're going to find victory. Because there is no victory over sin. There is no victory over the devil and there is definitely no victory over death if you do not heed the blast of this horn. If you do not hear its sound and rally around the king, only here can you be saved from our enemies and saved from all who hate us, Zechariah says. 1 Corinthians, for instance, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 15, verse 25 to 26, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This means that we can expect the Messiah to triumph over his enemies through his church, and steadily over time, the kingdom of Christ will grow. Now, Jesus uses all sorts of parables to define the church, like a mustard seed, tiny little mustard seed, right? Insignificant, seemingly unimportant, falls to the ground, grows into this enormous tree. And you have to know that a mustard seed grows into a bush that's like yay high. So it's not growing into what you expect it to grow into. It grows into an enormous tree that birds can nest in. Uh, This seed is going to be so much more impressive than you think. And that's kind of how the kingdom of Christ grows as as it advances and overcomes his enemies, as Christ sits on the right hand of the Father and sees the kingdom go forth. And so why is God doing all this? Why is he... Why is he saying all these things to Zechariah? Why is Zechariah prophesying these things? Ultimately, it's because he's faithful. It's not because Israel, he looks at Israel and he thinks they're great people and I'm I'm in a weird spot because they're great people and they're doing all this great stuff and I want to go save them. They're not great. They're not a great nation. You can read all the time in the Old Testament 
their shortcomings. God will say, I'm not doing this for you because you guys are mightier than the other nations or more righteous than the other nations. I'm doing it because of my own great love, my own faithfulness. Why is Jesus being sent here? Because of God's faithfulness. He's not abandoned Israel. He's not abandoned these promises. Nor has the sin and rebellion of Israel overcome his purposes. God will be faithful to the covenant. And what was that covenant? It's a covenant he made to Abraham a long time ago. You may remember the Genesis series. We spent some time on Abraham. A lot of covenants was made with a lot of covenant um, promises were made to Abraham. But to summarize it, it was really just to bless Abraham, his people, the people that would descend from him, and through them to bless all the families of the world. And there would be one offspring that would come from Abraham, a singular offspring that was promised that would fulfill all the things that the prophets have spoken and would be this uh, proof that God will fulfill all that he has said. And how can you know that God will be faithful to his promises? Because he's proven time and time again that he is faithful, despite the sinfulness of men. You'd think that the sin would cause so much of, you know, if you get like a bit of thread um, or like, you know, some of you ladies might find a, a ball of hair somewhere in the corner or something. Good luck trying to untangle that, right? Trying to get each individual strand out of it or, you know, a bunch of a little ball of threads or whatever like that. Sin is kind of like that, where we get to a point where we're just like scratching our heads and I'm like, I don't know how to fix this situation. You don't know how to fix this situation. No one knows how to fix this situation because sin is so destructive. It just brings us into all these tangles. But then Jesus comes in and he's able to untangle all of these things. Sin is not able to overcome the work of Jesus. All of the tangles of our lives, the messiness in our marriages, the messiness in our parenting or in our communities or in our friendships are not enough to overcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's the same with Israel. Man, Israel was a mess. Talk about a tangle. Who's going to solve that problem? Well, God came in and he did. He ransomed them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Very interesting passage, isn't it? God will always fulfill his word. No faithlessness of men, no denying of the truth will stop God's will from triumphing in the end. And that means, Christian, your task is to do what the Apostle Paul says here. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Endure. Stick it out with Jesus. Whether we feel him with us or whether we don't feel him with us. Whether we perceive his presence or we don't perceive his presence. Whether you feel abandoned or or not, we know that he is faithful. We know that our feelings don't define reality. How, How often have our feelings come into a situation... And it's just completely out of tune with reality. That we've had an argument with someone and we know they meant this thing. And then after like, you know, an hour of talking to them, you come out of it thinking they didn't mean it that way and they didn't say any of those things. Your feelings like completely made a mess of everything. How many times have your feelings just absolutely made a mess of your own situation, your marriage, your relationships with people, your parenting? Our feelings come in all the time and mess with us. And our feelings about whether God has abandoned us or not are just the same. How do you know whether God has abandoned you? Really, think about it. How do you know? 
How can you come up to me and, tell, and say to me, Cody, I'm, I'm dead set, God has abandoned me. How would you know? Well, he's faithful. The only way you know if God has abandoned you is if you deny him, if you reject him. That's what it says here, 2 Timothy. If you deny him, either by your actions or by your words. Because he is faithful, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Right? So the question isn't whether God has abandoned you. Have you abandoned God? Is the real question. Because Israel, who rejected God, he came down to them. And they still rejected him. And we know they're not saved. God has come down to you. He has come into your life. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We know that God is faithful, that he's true, that he will never let us down, whether in life or in death, he'll hold us firmly in his love until we meet him face to face. If you feel abandoned, come back to him. Love him. Cling to him. For your feelings do not define reality. Zechariah and Elizabeth here are like exhibit A of why God is faithful to those who love him. He's faithful to all who trust in him. He's a firm foundation, a trustworthy refuge, a faithful provider. The worst we can do is swerve from this truth and deny him. Outside of Christ, there is no other salvation. Outside of Christ, there is no other blood to pay our ransom. Outside of Christ, there is no other possibility of being reconciled to God. Outside of Christ, there is nothing for us except misery, defeat, and suffering. Our good deeds won't do it. No performance, no ritual, no love shown will secure our salvation. Only the blood of Christ shed for sinners like us. And once that work has been done in us, Zechariah says, what does he say? He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the salvation one. This is what he moves on. He, he's moved on from Christ's sacrifice now, the prophecy of it, to the results of what this will bring. And he alludes to the Exodus here, when Israel was rescued from slavery so they could serve and worship God without the interference of Pharaoh. But what are they being rescued from? Who were their enemies? The Jewish mind would have probably gone to the Romans, those dreaded oppressors who continued to oppress them. But the New Testament never promises deliverance from the Romans. They're delivered from a far more potent enemy. And the enemy rears its head in three forms. The New Testament refers to them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three things that are ultimately going to keep you from God. The world will enculturate you into its rebellion. It'll say to you, be like us. Join us in our rebellion. The flesh will entice you into rebellion. The flesh will tell you it's good. You're going to feel good. It's going to be great. And the devil deceives you into rebellion. The devil will tell you, no, actually, God hasn't said that. Or no, actually, this is actually good for you. Or, of course, God's cool with this. 
And when you get those three things together, what man or woman can stand before their onslaught? Not only are your own passions working against you, but everything else in the world is working against you, and the devil is now deceiving you and trying to rationalize all of it. You're in a bad position. They're powerful. They're a broad path, and they lead many to destructions. But for Christ, those who have chosen the narrow way, they've lived a life now of rejecting those three things. They've rejected the world and its systems. They've rejected their own flesh and its passions, and they've rejected the devil and his lies. That's the first step to becoming a Christian. I don't know if you knew that, but when you become a Christian, you repent and you say no to those three things. And it is hard. You lose a lot when you do it. But you gain so much. And you receive the Holy Spirit. And you turn away from all your enemies. And you begin to serve God without fear. He says here, in holiness and righteousness for all our days. There is a transformation that occurs. He's not saying that you don't fall back into sin. But he is saying that there is a key shift where you went from unrighteous and are growing in righteousness. You went from unholy and you're growing in holiness. There's a key distinction that happens there. And I wonder, does this describe you? Are you enemies with the world? Do you look at the world and you think, I do not like the world and its systems. I do not like the value systems that they have. I do not like the way that they tell me I ought to live my life. Or are you kind of friends with the world? Or maybe a little bit of frenemies with the world? James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And that word enmity means hostility. Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're like, James, can I just have a little bit of wiggle room here? You know, like, I just want a little bit of the love for the world. Just, you know, just a little bit and then you can have the rest of this thing. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, if you're friends of the world, you're enemies with God. What about the passions of your flesh? Do you feel an enemy to it? Do you make excuses for it? Do you try to reconcile the lies of the devil with the word of God? Are you often bewitched and entranced by every new wind of doctrine or every new take on God? These things are what Christ saves us from. And if we are still friends with them, then it's a good sign that we haven't been saved. But there is still hope, which is my third point, the arrival of the word. Let's finish our passage from verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness into the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's a beautiful end. I think, to our passage here. The sunrise coming up, peeking over the horizon, that time of darkness leaving. And it's interesting that Luke is going to begin with something that, you know, he begins with the birth of John. And he really wants to emphasize John here. You have to understand that what was occurring at Christmas was enormous. 
It wasn't merely the birth of a boy who would grow up to become a king. It wasn't merely the birth of a boy who would die for our sins. It was the arrival of God himself into his creation. A creation that he had created a clear distinction from. That he had protected his creation from. Remember when he descended upon Mount Sinai? It wasn't going to work out well for you if you ended up walking up that mountain. Because God's very near presence was there. If God's presence came down, you were in big trouble. You cannot see the face of God and survive. Even Moses, whose face shone uh, when he was in the presence of God, he had to be protected from God when God uh, presented himself to him. But here, God is entering the world in a different way. He's entering the world in what was called the incarnation. And it's that doctrine that Christ was embodied. He came down and he assumed human flesh. His glory was kind of veiled in human flesh and he didn't end up killing everyone that saw him, if that makes sense. But he also took on human flesh and he walked into the filth and the brokenness and everything that was going on. Like God, the most glorious, holy, righteous of beings, decided to come in and dwell with all this mess. And he did it by choice. He, he had everything you could possibly need in heaven, right? He had every every need catered for. He had all the praises of the angels and all the righteous, but he came down because there was a job to do. God set aside John the Baptist to prepare the Jews for the arrival of God. That's a big task. That is a huge task. How would you go preparing an entire nation, all of Australia, for the arrival of God? You've got a big task ahead of you, don't you? Well, the angel prophesied that we see that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and then paraphrases and expands this prophecy in Malachi. And here's what Malachi says. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And I don't know if you know this, but this sending of Elijah is not necessarily a sign that things are going well in Israel. Things are going well in Israel. This would be a man who would fulfill the role of Elijah, who would bring with it heart change. And if this heart change doesn't take place, God prophesies that the land would be set apart for destruction. And so who was Elijah? Well, we remember Elijah was a guy who like, prophesied a great drought that would come upon Israel, and then the drought came. Uh, he ended up uh, performing some miracles. He ended up uh, killing uh, 450 of the priests of Baal, He was kind of this wild man. Elijah became the figure of the wild man of God who lived out in the wilderness and you kind of knew that if you went out there to the wild man of God, you were probably going to have all your sins called out and you probably weren't going to leave feeling very good about yourself. It was the wild person who spoke outside of the social centers and and spoke words of judgment and he didn't care what anyone thought of him. He wasn't a tame man. He was a man that if killing 450 priests of Baal was on the agenda, he was willing to do it. Now, John the Baptist was going to have the same kind of ministry. Maybe not the whole killing of the priests of Baal part, but he was going to prepare the people of Israel for the Lord's coming, and he had a hard ministry. And his entire ministry was to get the people of Israel's hearts ready to receive the Lord. And it kind of breaks our paradigm what a Christian man looks like, doesn't it? Jesus calls a guy like John the Baptist the greatest man to ever live. We might need uh, to change our definition of what a godly Christian man looks like, don't we? But to turn from their idolatry, this was the key thing he wanted them to do, and to repent of their sins and to follow this new thing that the Lord is doing. And all these events happened 
um, during a time that it seemed that God had abandoned them. But he was the first light. And it kind of shows that when God appears into our life, it seems like it would be awesome. It seems like, oh yeah, the light shining in, all the darkness going and all that kind of stuff. But you forget one thing. We kind of like the darkness. And so when he comes in as a light, John the Baptist here, telling everyone, repent, telling everyone to, you know, come and get baptized and get ready for the king and here's all these horrible things that you're doing. They weren't really ready for it. They didn't understand the new thing that God was doing. They didn't understand just how willing God was to be close to them and how near he would be. When the prophets spoke of the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, they were actually preparing the way of the Lord. The Lord was going to meet them and the sunrise will visit us. And those who love God will welcome the sun even though it might be uncomfortable. And those who hate God will not welcome the sun because their deeds are exposed. If you're struggling, know there is a sunrise. But we may not like it. <laughs> but God is shining light into our lives. And it's good. It's good for us. It came 2,000 years ago. If you're in a dark place, look to that light because that light will never be overcome by the darkness. And that tangled ball of thread that you may think is your life, it is going to be hard to untangle it. But there is only one surgeon that can untangle it, and that is Jesus. There is only one who can help us, and that is Jesus. If you feel unloved, look to the God who for love sent his son to you. If you're in a dark place, look to the light. And if you have tears on your cheek, look to the one who will wipe them away. Because he is the only one who can rescue. He's the only one who can save. If there's anything that you get from all of the things that we just read from Luke 1, get the identity of Jesus right. And understand that your feelings do not define things. And he has not abandoned you. We have abandoned him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your most holy scripture that teaches us truth. And Father, we know our feelings and our passions often get in the way of truth. And we feel certain things are right when they are really lies. And we feel certain truths um, cannot be overcome, and yet through your word you overcome them. And so Father, I pray for every man and woman and child in this place, Lord, that you by your Holy Spirit would be so powerful upon them to show them upon, uh, the truth, uh, to, to shine your light into darkness and to dispel any feelings that they may have um, cherished or cultivated that may not line up with the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word had, uh, speaks so powerfully to us. And I pray, Lord, that it would reach all our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.